Welcome to The Interdisciplinarian, where product managers share their stories and insights from the field. Welcome to The Interdisciplinarian. I'm your host, Alex Cowan, and I am here today with Ira Renfrew, who is a senior manager at iRobot. Thanks for joining us, Ira. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Alex. So you make robots. Some of our listeners may not know what iRobot is. I, I have a Roomba, a robotic vacuum, and I, and I love it, but not everybody knows about it. Can you tell us a little bit about what you guys do at iRobot? Yeah, sure. And yeah, I think probably a lot of people have seen DJ Roomba or uh, Roomba Beer Pong uh, recently, <laughs> which has been great publicity. But iRobot's actually a pretty old company. We've been around over 25 years, but we now have a focus entirely on consumer robotics. We're best known for our Roomba robotic vacuum cleaner, but we also make other robots that help you take care of the home. One of the things that I thought would be most interesting for us to talk about is the use of innovation techniques and and that you know some of the kind of methods that we, we talk about a lot here on the interdisciplinarian in the context of a hardware company and hardware and kind of low-level software that's it's pretty complicated, I would think, to, to make it work. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys make room to experiment with those kind of long lead times and what I would assume are relatively complicated components? Our product development cycles are quite a bit longer than uh, I think what people are used to, certainly in the software world, but even in, you know, if you look at CPG or um, some of those other product-related uh, businesses. So I think the first part of making room for innovation is just being patient. It takes some time. And then I think at the corporate level, another thing is having the financial room uh, to pay for innovation, so having the margins that can support innovation. Uh, then I would kind of split it. There's technical innovation and, you know, some of that low-level software you're talking about. You know, we have uh, a very large R&D team who's working very hard on improvements and advancements in the software and also the hardware that powers our robots. Um, but then I think the other place where we make innovation is really more on the product side. And in my mind, that comes down to having a really deep understanding of what people are going to do with these robots or what needs they have in their life that are unmet, and then designing for that. And it doesn't always take some kind of um, advanced technology to meet their needs. A lot of times it's uh, more minor changes to uh, the product itself, or even in some cases, uh, the assortment of products that we have in a given market. And I think um, a good example of that would be uh, for a long time in China, we were really promoting our vacuum cleaners. And then after doing deep ethnographic research in homes to understand how Chinese families were cleaning their homes, um, we saw that actually there was a significant emphasis on mopping. And that led us to change the balance of our portfolio to emphasize our mopping robots. And that's been very successful for us. What kind of teams do you send out to, to do that kind of research? Do you, do you go do it yourself, or do you have a dedicated design team? How does it work? Well, I think it's a mix of things, um, but we do try to send out interdisciplinary teams to get out there and do the research. And at least in the work that I do, I really try to uh, maintain an emphasis on this overlap between engineering, design, and product, and have that well represented early in the development cycle. Um, so we'll go out there. Uh, a lot of times our, our uh, user experience team will lead the research um, I'll be there as well, and then we try to bring engineers along, um, because then when we come back and we do the debrief or we uh, you know, do a brainstorm around what ideas could help solve these problems, it's really helpful for everyone who's in the room to have been on site and actually you know, had that uh, context in, in person rather than just getting you know, sort of the, the research synopsis after the fact. 
How do you guys decide what ideas to test? I think there are some ideas that um, are just very difficult to test, so sometimes they don't get tested. But I would say we would sort of prioritize based on um, which ones feel like we could get uh, get to soonest uh, in terms of technical hurdles, and then which ones seem like they would have uh, a business case behind them. And you know, when we're early in the process, this can be a really quick swag of getting a sense of what the business case might be by looking at adjacent categories or just doing some back-of-the-envelope calculation. And then we prioritize, of, okay, well, of those ones that you know, we think there's actually a path to building it and there's probably a promising business case, which ones might we be able to hack together in, a, in some kind of prototype um, as quickly as possible? Um, and then I think I'd mentioned about prototypes. A lot of people talk about 3D printing and how that enables prototyping in the hardware space, uh, and that has been an amazing tool. But I think sometimes it puts too much emphasis on the hardware itself. Uh, mm-hmm. And at least in the case of robots, a lot of times um, what you're prototyping for someone to learn about whether it's a compelling product idea is actually the experience, not necessarily the device. And so one way that we get out earlier to test is by thinking about how else can we create that experience for somebody um, rather than having to build it with a piece of hardware that we would create ourselves. And that can really accelerate things. That's great. Do you have any examples of that? One way to do that is to look at competitive or similar products and see if we can modify it or hack it to get to the experience that we want. Another way uh, is to think about simulating it. So uh, a little while ago, I was doing some research on different mm, user needs in outdoor home care. So we had gone out and we had spoken to people, asked them, you know, what are these, uh, like, what are the jobs to be done? What are the things that you guys do outside? And we were looking at not just like, you know, like rake the leaves or, um, you know, pick up sticks that have fallen down, like these very, like, um, task-oriented things. We're also looking at, you know, enjoy it with my family, play a volleyball game, those kind of jobs to be done as well. Um, And then we came back, um, did that kind of uh, prioritizing that I talked about, and put together prototypes. And so for one of the prototypes, we took a dolly, a cardboard box, a big plastic bin, and a remote control car, and kind of like nailed it all together, um, put some duct tape around it to clean up the, the appearance of it, and put the remote control car underneath it, and then used the remote control car to drive that contraption around to create the experience of, a, of an outdoor um, yard helper um, without having to do any sort of robotics work. You know, it, was from, it was probably a four-hour job and a trip to Home Depot to get it up and running. What would be an example of something you were trying to observe there? So what we were trying to observe was how does that prototype... Um, interact with the environment and how do people interact with the prototype mm-hmm. um, and so we took it to uh, there was one guy who did a lot of gardening so we thought okay this product might be great for him just kind of like help him out and follow him behind and he could throw the deadheaded flowers in there but then uh, what we found was that the pathways between his flower beds were really narrow and so this contraption that we had put together actually couldn't navigate alongside him or behind him to help him out so we very quickly got this feedback of nope wrong size Maybe we need to go back and think about downsizing it uh, for people who have these you know, sort of flower beds that are closer together. You know, obviously, that's the sample size of one, and we're always careful about you know, how much do we draw from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're able to sort of extrapolate uh, you know, the people who might find this useful also might be the people who would have you know, raised beds that might be close together. So maybe we need to take another look at the idea itself. I think you've mentioned, when we've talked in the past, the importance of, of Wizard of Oz prototypes mm-hmm. with, with robotics. Can you talk a little bit about what you use it to test, how you use it, and what it is? Wizard of Oz, I mean, that's the term, you know, you've got a, a guy behind the curtain who's running the show, um, but for everyone who's viewing it, 
it looks and feels real. Um, the example that I just gave uh, didn't really look and feel real because it was you know, covered in duct tape and pretty much hacked together. So that was much earlier. One of the nice things about using the Wizard of Oz approach is that you can get to meaningful uh, feedback from consumers um, even before you know, a robot is ready to do the type of thing that you want it to do. Now, actually, one of the lowest fidelity versions of that is to make a concept video. And in the concept video, show the robot doing what you intend it to do whether that's in animation or in like some kind of modified live video. But in showing it in video, you start to make it real for people. And so I'd say that's sort of the first level of Wizard of Oz. The next level, when you're in the home, um, I could give you an example. Uh, so we recently launched our first Wi-Fi connected um, robot, and it also has a, a camera that helps it navigate. So one of the benefits of having the camera uh, to help navigate is the robot is now able to move in straight lines. Uh, instead of doing the random bounce navigation that uh, Roombas had done in the past. I've now, noticed that between my old and my new Roomba. Okay, cool. So one of the ways that we could you know, Wizard of Oz that before writing all the software that would, uh, I mean, it's a pretty complex set of software to grab these visual uh, markers and then turn that into navigation guidance. One of the ways that you can Wizard of Oz that is to use a remote control and you know, be in the consumer's home, have the robot on the floor, and drive it back and forth in straight lines just using a remote control. And what we find is that people very quickly will kind of lend you their imagination um, and go along with that. Like, you know, sometimes they don't even notice someone's remote controlling it and they think the robot's doing it themselves. Sometimes they notice, but they get caught up in that moment of, oh, cool, here's the robot driving in straight lines, and then give a reaction to that. Whether it's, you know, oh, I love it, it's going in straight lines, or it's like, well, you know, maybe I preferred the, the random bounce. So that's another example of how you can Wizard of Oz something and drastically reduce the time to get feedback and also just drastically reduce the amount of effort you put in to validate that it's a good idea. We've talked about the, the use of, of Agile and how does it work and not work with, with hardware. Can you talk a little bit about how you use Agile and how you unpack things to make them soluble for yeah, working in that way? definitely. Um, so sort of going back to those you know, long product cycles that we have, um, part of what drives that is in the hardware world, and I would say probably even more in the robotics world, where you have these integrated systems, there are some things that just take a long time, uh, and they take a long time to mature. So as we've been thinking about you know, adopting Agile and where to make the most use of it, there are definitely some places where you know, doing a two- or three-week sprint can be helpful as kind of a management tool, but you know, you're working on a task that's like a four-month task, and that's just sort of the way it is. But there are a lot of other things that can be easily broken down into smaller bytes and can be accelerated. So while there might be some uh, elements of the robot that are moving at a slower pace, there are others that can kind of be you know, in the fast track or the express lane. And within two weeks, you can, uh, two or three weeks, you can do a really quick cycle. And for those things, um, you know, an example would be wheels uh, on a robot that I was working on recently. So we wanted to improve the traction of the wheels. We were just generating different 3D prints uh, of wheels, uh, testing them and quickly iterating. And being on that sort of agile framework sort of fits nicely with that quick cycling uh, on some of these modules. I think the other thing I would say about uh, adapting agile to the hardware world is that it forces the product management team and the engineering leadership to take a really hard look at what can be chunked off, both in terms of the, the product development, but also in terms of the risk burned down. And mm -hmm. you know, for, particularly for me in product management, I think a lot about what's the consumer risk burned down. So what are the specific like risk areas that we see related to this robot, and then you know 
how can we, within a, you know, a sprint or two sprints, um, quickly burn that down and move on from it with confidence? What I find a lot of the time is that it, it takes a bunch of work by, by teams. And I'll tell you, it's surprising where this resistance to doing things that way comes from. And it's, it's not overt resistance. I don't, I've never met really anybody who objects to doing these things in principle. But um, you'll find people who just don't believe that we can unpack things this way, you know, and if we, if we unpack it, it's, we're going to break, uh, you know, all these other bad things are going to happen because probably because they're used to doing things in a certain way. And I, and I wouldn't pigeonhole that as a thing I've observed, particularly in engineering or product management mm-hmm. or business. I mean, I've seen it come from all those different places. Have you experienced that and in, 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 to any degree? And if so, what are the strategies that you use to help kind of show people how, how you might unpack those things? Well, I think the thing that was most powerful for the team that I'm working with now, who has sort of fully adopted across the team, has fully adopted Agile, one of the most powerful things at the beginning was to sit with another team who had been the first team within iRobot to adopt Agile in a hardware um, setting and to get their testimonial. So that was, you know, their, uh, it was engineering peers um, and sort of trusted colleagues saying, yeah, this works um, and actually we love it. that melted away a lot of the skepticism and the resistance. And then I think the other part of it, um, which is kind of part of the agile mindset, is just do it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, was to just, we set it up with a team of, okay, we're going to do this for um, several iterations, and then we're going to have a touch point and see how it's going. Yeah. Um, and we intentionally did several iterations because we knew the first couple iterations there'd be some you know, learning pains and yeah. uh, it wouldn't go so smoothly. We wanted to get it to where it felt more like a cadence. And then we did a checkpoint with the team and people wanted to continue. What that's kind of unlocked in the team is also this willingness to experiment. And so an example related to Agile is you know, we started off with two-week uh, iterations and then at some point there were some comments, well, you know, we wish we had one more week. Uh, that would allow us to like, fit some of these things in more nicely. And then we had a bunch of people saying, no, 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 two weeks is great. So we said, okay, fine, let's you know, do two iterations of three weeks each and see what we think. And you know, in that case, what we found is at the end of the um, two iterations that were three weeks each, the team wanted to go back to the two weeks. Uh, <laughs> and so we you know, took that decision and back we were to, to the way that we were. But it's, it's really like opened up the ability to experiment, which has been mm-hmm. great. That's fantastic. Well, this is some fantastic perspective from a product that that is not the most obvious place to uh, iterate quickly. Ira, thank you so much for joining us and giving us your perspective. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us. If you'd like to check out some material on how to do some of these things, feel free to visit us on Coursera in our Agile Development Specialization, which is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash high agile, H-I-A-G-I-L-E. Or if you're interested in product management specifically, check out our digital product management course on Coursera, which is bit.ly slash digiprod, D-I-G-I dash P-R-O-D. Thanks again for joining us. The Interdisciplinarian is a production of Darden Media in cooperation with the Batten Institute at UVA's Darden School of Business.